Thank you for tuning in to the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is an online ministry striving to feed people the life-sustaining bread of God's Word. Bread of the Word exists for the reclamation of the Bible in the heart, mind, and walk of all the saints of God, for it is the Bible itself which is the ultimate standard by which people are to live and honor God. Thank you for tuning in. This is Bread of the Word. To the Bread of the Word podcast. My name is Tyler, and I'm excited to be with you this Sunday afternoon with the Bread of the Word podcast. We have a big episode coming. Um, we're going to be covering a bit of information in this installment, covering Romans chapter 11. But I'm excited to dig into the, the meat of this chapter with you today. And I wanted to let you know about a um, special episode that's coming down the pipeline from Bread of the Word. So the Monday after Easter, mark your calendars, will be the very first Bread of the Word interview. I'll be sitting down with Mr. Claude Ramsey from the Here I Stand Theology podcast, and we're going to have a candid conversation on the meaning of Easter and how we live out the truth of the resurrection every day of the year. And I'm excited to I'll sit down with, on with him and talk through that. I'm excited to share with you what that conversation um, develops into. I'm looking forward to putting that episode out, so be on the lookout for that. You'll start seeing some promotions about it in the coming weeks. But without further ado, let us dig into Romans chapter 11. So, just a little bit of recap. Romans 8 through 11 is kind of its own section. And Paul is deliberating on the sufficiency of Christ, both in his, his power as part of the Trinity, his sufficiency in calling his people, in keeping his people. And Romans 11 is kind of con the conclusion of this theme that Christ is sufficient and he is the, the bookends of our salvation, that it is started and maintained by God. And he now devotes time to Israel, because we've been talking about how Israel rejected Christ, but Israel was the covenant people of God. And so Paul is anticipating that that's going to be a point of contention, and that's something he has to give time to clarify. How does Israel fit into the gospel? How does the covenant in the Old Testament fit into the New Testament church? These are questions that Paul provides clarity on in this chapter, and we will deal with some of them. We will be covering verses 1 through 10. And so, let us begin by reading those first 10 verses. And Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, 
they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant, chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a rep retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and bend their backs forever. So let's start with verse 1. Paul begins with a rhetorical question. The Apostle Paul truly was a master of rhetoric, of commanding words to shape his listeners with truth. And we see this throughout the book of Romans. And he begins this chapter with a question. And it's worded as though it's going to be a negative answer. He articulates his question as if the answer is going to be something that's bad. Has God rejected his people? Rejected, that is a negative verb. Verbiage matters, and we see this a lot in the book of Romans when he asks questions like this. Has God rejected his people? If God has called the Gentiles, has saved Gentiles, but the Israelites are not, is he finished with them? Has, Paul, has God cast out Israel? Paul says, absolutely not. By no means, the text says, the King James would word that, God forbid. And what proof does Paul give that God has not abandoned Israel? Himself. It says in Philippians chapter 3, Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, in what you could do with your hands, he says, I have more. He writes, I, am, I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But everything that was a gain to me, I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. If, in short, if anyone could be justified by works, it was Paul, you would think. But he wasn't. He was received into the covenant of grace because of Christ, not Paul. The evidence that the Jews still have a place in the purposes of God is that God saved Saul of Tarsus. He interrupted his life and placed his spirit within a Pharisee who had no interest in Christ. Has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. It's verse 2. The Lord has not rejected those he foreknew. Paul is bringing to mind a statement he said in Romans 8, if you remember that word foreknew. We talked about this a bit in Romans chapter 8. In one of the big texts that we like to quote, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And we love that verse, and we hold that verse close, because we know 
that God is working all things for the good of his people. That while all this horrible stuff happened in the Old Testament with exiles and being conquered by wicked kings and all this, it was all working for a good purpose according to God's standard of good. That God was working out the highest good in all of that. And so we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those that he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for, all, for us all. How will he not also, with him, grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. God has not forsaken those whom he foreknew, because it is God who enacts our salvation, and it is God who keeps us there. When God elects people unto adoption as sons before the foundations of the world, it is settled. There is no leeway in his ordination. The Westminster Confession of Faith, that ever-famous statement that I love so much, God from eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably foreordained whatsoever cometh to pass. That when God sets out to do something, there is no alternative. There is not anything left to chance. What God has set out to do, he will do. And he will do it to completion. Psalm 119 verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. Thou hast established the earth, and it abideth. So what God has set out to do is already settled. Before any of us were born, God's will for our life was already laid out, was already set in motion. So if God is working all things for good, why does evil run free? Why does the darkness advance? Why does Satan seem to win? And these are good questions to have in our modern context. These are questions that the early Christians would have had, likely. When Paul's writing Romans, there is much persecution going on. There is persecution that would become worse later. The Christians were not exactly the winners of popularity contests in first century Greece. So why does his plan involve such heartache, such hardship and persecution? Um, Pastor James Montgomery Boyce gives us a bird's eye view of this chapter that we may see the grand arc that runs through Romans 8 through 11, which is helpful. Because ultimately, these four chapters show us the sufficiency of Christ as Savior, Redeemer, and the sufficiency of his call and election. And I think it's important to take a step back with Romans 11 to try and grab the whole picture. And so he gives a seven-point summary of these chapters. And I'm going to read it because I think it's helpful. It was helpful to me. 
and I, I want to give you guys every resource to dig deeper into this this passage of scripture. But he puts it this way. Since this account begins the fifth of Paul's arguments in Romans 9-11, through 11, in which he proves that the purposes of God have not failed and are, in fact, continuing, it will be helpful to summarize and review them here, as we have done at each point at which a new argument is introduced. God's purposes for Israel have not failed because, one, all whom God has elected to salvation are and will be saved. Romans 9, 6-24 What determines salvation is the electing grace of God in Christ, and that has always been separate from any ethnic, national, or organizational distinctives. Number two, God had already revealed that not all Israel would be saved and that some Gentiles would be. This is a proof from prophecy. Number three, the failure of the Jews to believe was their own fault and not God's. The Jews refused to believe because they wanted to earn salvation for themselves, just as most people do today. Number four, some Jews had believed and have been saved. Paul offers himself as an example. Number five, it has always been the case that even in the worst of times, a remnant has been saved. This is the point to which we have come now. It is proved by the fact that even in the dark days of Elijah's ministry, by God's own count and revelation, 7,000 Jews were still faithful to God and had refused to worship Baal. Number six, the salvation of the Gentiles, which is now occurring, is meant to arouse Israel to envy and thus be the means of saving some of them. Number seven, in the end, all Israel will be saved. Today, these arguments are a powerful case for the irrevocability of God's covenant promises. Even, the face, even in the face of such strong human resistance and rejection as have been shown by Israel. All that to say that God has always been preserving his people. When he covenanted with Israel, part of that covenant included the preservation of some. This is a theme that spans from Genesis to Revelation. God has always preserved a remnant. We go to Genesis 6, when he is making a covenant with Noah to preserve him and his family. And he tells him to build an ark. He says in verse 17, understand that I am bringing a flood. Flood waters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you will enter, enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. A part of God's covenant, the way he relates to his people, that hard-wrought promise that he makes, is not just for the moment, but it is long-term, that you, he will keep us. In Amos chapter 3, it says, The Lord says, As the shepherd snatches two legs, or a piece of an ear, from the lion's mouth, so the Israelites who live in Samaria will be rescued with only the corner of a bed or the cushion of a couch. What he's, he's using poetic imagery there, but what Amos is trying to get across, speaking by the Holy Spirit, is that Israel has been attacked by the lion. The lion being pagan nations that would conquer Israel. But the Lord will rescue some from the mouth of the lion. And he will keep them. And then we go from 
the Old Testament to the New Testament with Revelation chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, restraining the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on the earth or the sea or any tree. Then I saw another angel rising up from the east who had the seal of the living God. He cried out in a loud voice to the four angels who were allowed to harm the earth and the sea. Don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we seal the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites. 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Judah. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Benjamin. After this, there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a large voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. All that to say that running through Scripture, through the, the redemptive narrative that follows both Testaments, you have this idea that God is pre preserving people, that he is securing for himself a people. From every tribe, tongue, and nation. First the Jews. And then the Jews in Samaria. And then it was the Gentiles as a whole. And Paul uses the story of Elijah to demonstrate that God is and always has been preserving a remnant of his faithful ones. And he keeps them despite what goes on around them. Part of God's covenant with his people is for their preservation. He seals them. He, he keeps us in the palm of his hand. Romans 11, chapter, verse 4. But what is God's reply to him, to Elijah? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. In other words, when we believe we are at the end of the line, as the Jews often felt, we are mistaken. Christ promised that he would build his church on the rock, and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Gates are not an offensive means, but a defensive. The enemy is not playing offense. He's playing defense. The destruction we see in our world, the all of this we're seeing fall apart. What we're, what we're seeing is the systematic breakdown of all that does not fear God. Humanism is failing. But the gospel will go forwards. It will advance. The kingdom of God is not at risk here. When we talk and when we read about God's covenant with Israel, we have to recognize that his view of the covenant that he made is not ours. His view of the horizon of covenantal redemption is massively broad in comparison with our own. He sees it with both eyes open. We do not have his peripheral vision. Thus it is vain and misinformed for us to declare the church is losing and that things are getting worse. 
when we believe in the sovereignty of God. When we believe that God who saves people also seals them. Verse 5. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise grace would not be grace. Israel was sealed by grace. A remnant of, of Israel, the true Israel, that spiritual Israel that we read in Romans 9, was sealed by grace, not merit. God was gracious to seal a remnant. But he hardened others, just like Pharaoh. But there's always been a portion preserved, and that portion was larger than people expected. Elijah thought he was alone, but there were 7,000 others. And God's dealings here with hardening brings us back to Romans chapter 1. And it's, it's a hard concept to wrap our heads around, and I don't think anybody really can understand this idea of God hardening people's hearts. Because it is hard to wrap our heads around. It, it sounds harsh. But Romans 1, verse 18 through 25, tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Sin operates both as transgression and punishment for it. We sin more when we reject God and welcome sin. Our eyes become blind to the verities of God. We don't, we're not considered sinful because we sin. We sin because we are sinful. Sin is just the outworking of a wicked heart. And when we reject God and embrace that sinful heart, we sin more. And we can't know God because we are dead in sin. We are physically alive, yet spiritually dead. We are dead where it counts. That we can't will ourselves to be saved. And the Jews thought they had it figured out. They had the prophets. They had the laws. They had the whole Old Testament laid out for them for centuries. And they had all the books. They had dedicated libraries and archives to studying the Torah, to studying God's law, because the law is God, the law is immutable, and we know God by his law. But friends, I'm here to tell you today that regardless of how many books are on my shelf, I cannot study my way into the kingdom of God. I cannot make myself worthy of walking through those gates of my own volition. I can't pass the exam. I can't test in 
to heaven. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If I don't have respect for God, if I don't have honor for God, I've completely missed the point of the books. Because it brings us back to the book. This is why it's so great that the gospel is freely given to dead people. Therein lies our only hope in this world. That the God of the heavens is a saving God. As Conrad and Bayway once said, the sacrifice of God's Son on the cross is the fireplace where we warm our cold hearts to our God. And that's harsh. That is a harsh statement, but that is where we are. That the only reason we have come unto Christ is because God has interrupted our sinful patterns and he's made himself known to us he's opened our eyes to his glorious light he has provided for us a means to know him and to be saved by him and one grand book of the bible that i love going to when thinking on these things like election and reprobation and these big theological terms a lot of people like going to Romans 9 to make their case for God's sovereignty and salvation. I would rather go to books like Hosea. Because Hosea demonstrates it very distinctly. That we are this story. Hosea was a prophet in the Old Testament. And God instructed Hosea to take for himself an immoral wife. To use the... To use the term, she was a prostitute. She was, in that culture, she was considered untouchable. She was a wretched person. She was not a holy person. And that was so scandalous for Hosea to marry a prostitute and have children with her. And they have the children. And they have three kids. And they name them Scattered. In Hebrew, Scattered. Jezreel, and they name it another one, No Mercy, and Not My People. And these are obvious names of the outside children. These are the illegitimate, scandalous children. These are children conceived in scandal. And this is a family that, in that Jewish culture, was very broken, very strange, very unrighteous. This was the perfect soap opera right here. That that first broken family like this. And Gomer, the woman, she 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 leaves. And we don't really know why she leaves or what was going on in her head, but she takes off. And Hosea is left with the kids. And God tells Hosea to go and find her and to bring her back. And she actually is taken into the slave trade back into that life and Hosea buys her freedom and he redeems her he restores her and he brings her back into the family into the house because you and I are the gomers of the world we are that wife of scandal we are the bride of Christ but we are also the bride of scandal who has been redeemed by their husband and in the closing of Hosea in chapter 14, it says, I will heal their apostasy. 
I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olives. And his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. In short, God is taking broken people. He's taking the outsiders of the covenant. And he's making something beautiful. He's going to preserve it because they are his. It says in Isaiah, Thus says the Lord who formed you, and the one who created you, O Jacob, Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called you by your name. You are mine. This God preserves his people, of whom all who believe in Christ do take residence. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Bread of the Word podcast. I pray that it has been beneficial to your walk with God and that he has called you into a deeper relationship and fellowship with himself. If you want to hear more from Bread of the Word, feel free to hit that subscribe button down at the bottom. Get notified about new content whenever we go live. Um, you can also watch us on Rumble Video and YouTube, or you can listen on your favorite podcast platforms. Um, you can also find us on social media if you want to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Gab. Links will be provided in the bio um, if you would like to check those out. And there will also be a message in the comment section um, a free gospel message for download entitled The Two J's, The Joy of the Potter and the Journey of the Clay. That is something that I've written, and that is something God laid on me to write and then send out. And so I'm not making anything off of it. I'm not selling it. It is free for you to read and share. We need a further saturation of the gospel in our world, in our culture, and it starts right here. Bread of the Word Ministries exists for the reclamation of the Bible and the exaltation of Christ through the reading and teaching of His holy transformative Word. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. God bless. Matthew 4.4 4.